Welcome to the HTLL podcast. We are your co-hosts, Emily Harada, Technical Advisor for Health and Nutrition. And Tino Movuti, Technical Advisor for WASH. ADRA implements a lot of its work in conflict zones, including countries like Yemen, Syria, DRC, and most recently, Ukraine. In several of these conflicts, more deaths are attributed to illnesses resulting from poor health, nutrition, and access to WASH than just the bullets of war. In response, ADRA works to meet the needs of civilians affected by these conflicts. Over the next three episodes, we're going to discuss the challenges, opportunities, and realities of implementing humanitarian activities within the context of conflicts. In today's episode, we'll focus on WASH. Our guest is Mona Mohammed, ADRA International's former WASH advisor for the Middle East and North Africa region. During her time with ADRA, Mona collaborated on the design and implementation of water supply, sanitation, and hygiene promotion interventions within complex, multi-sectoral humanitarian projects in Yemen and Sudan. Mona is currently transitioning into a new role as Program Management Officer with the Lifecycle Initiative at the United Nations Environment Program, but she's agreed to speak with us on this important topic. Mona, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I'm very happy to be with you, um, Emily and Tina. It's uh, exciting to be back with Adra and hear about what's going on or just talking about it. So I'm very happy to be here today. Emily briefly mentioned the devastating effects of war in her introduction. To kick off this conversation, Mona, could you tell us a little more about the impact that armed conflict has specifically on access to critical water and sanitation services? Yeah, I think um, perhaps exactly as Emily mentioned, some of it is about the bullets and the direct attack on sources and water systems, as well as the use of access to water and sanitation as a weapon of war, trying to influence different um, groups of people or sometimes even punishing them for different positions they hold. But I actually think that at least in Yemen, that constitutes maybe around 5% of the um, damage that we are seeing to water systems. And there are two other major sources of damage to um, water systems. And they're what we think of as the secondary effects of war that directly impact the water and sanitation systems. So first is, of course, armed conflict over a long period of time, a protracted crisis like we see in Yemen and Sudan. They weaken the financial power of beneficiaries. They exhaust and deplete savings. And so it becomes harder and harder for communities to maintain these systems. And so what could have been a very small issue or a very small expense at the beginning of this crisis is now a much larger issue that needs a much bigger intervention. And it is really interesting because we see how the paradigm of giving financial aid 
in a humanitarian situation or an emergency is focused on saving or providing water to those who already don't have access to waters. The other part that I wanted to touch upon here is the um, pressure that's posed by internally displaced peoples and refugees as they navigate the, the conflict and the war. So as people move from different location to another location, there are, of course, multiple challenges that come with that. But perhaps for water and sanitation systems, all of a sudden gets a huge increase in the number of population in one community that you had not planned for. So this is not the typical growth that we plan these systems for. This does not happen over a period of time. Sometimes it just happens, you know, one morning to the next, you now have a large amount of people that have moved to this location and are now competing for what in Yemen is especially is a very scarce resource. And that in many times, you know, causes the expansion of communities or settlements, which means that parts of this settlement will no longer have access to water. It could also mean that we break the system by operating it for longer hours or at a higher capacity than it was meant for. So, so these are some of the ways that the armed conflict impacts the access to water and sanitation services. That's just um, really sobering to hear. It really makes it real to hear firsthand about the realities and challenges in some of the places that we work. But moving on, while you were with ADRA, you spent a lot of your time working on projects in Yemen, a country which and you have already mentioned this, in addition to being at war, is also among the world's most water-scarce regions. Did this reality of trying to meet the water demands of affected people in such a challenging water resource context, did that create an additional burden for organizations like ADRA that are working to increase access to water? And in your opinion, have humanitarian actors being successful in responding to such environmental and climate change issues alongside the equally urgent need for water? It's quite complicated to judge how successful NGOs have been in terms of specifically addressing that scarcity. Uh, But I would say that there's, of course, an adaptation specifically to that resource being so scarce. So, for example, if we look at the the type of work uh, we do in Sudan or Adra does in Sudan, we we rehabilitate water points that haven't been used. We're able to, in in that region in general, we're able to dig more water wells and uh, and use that as new sources of water, etc. But when you come to a place like Yemen, that's not always possible. Actually, that's not possible at all. Um, There is, of course, a lot of digging of uh, water resources and and water wells around the country and is not uh, monitored or permitted or anything like that. But that is not the type of work that NGOs engage in. So I already see that as a positive adaptation. 
But also the other part to this is we're always looking at alternative water sources. So Adra also has an experience with rainwater harvesting, actually more than one, perhaps one under the um, U.S. portfolio, but other uh, donors as well within at working with Adra have tried to focus more on rainwater harvesting and experience a type of work that's quite common in Yemen traditionally, but that we are now doing a lot of rehabilitation around. And then there, there are newer things like reuse of sanitation, treated sanitation water, which is quite new to the community. So they might not be as welcoming too. But as you see more and more people suffering the impacts of scarcity of water resources and the impacts of climate change, they are desperate for alternative solutions. So there's definitely a space and there are a few um, trials in the humanitarian community to try and address that need. But perhaps we haven't reached quite a systematic manner of doing that. And part of that even is the conversation around integrated water resources management, looking at watershed management as a whole, as opposed to just the water resources in a community. Um, will definitely open up the the door for conserving and reusing more resources for the community um, to meet their needs. But that is not there specifically because of this divide between humanitarian and development aid. So these are some of the things that we could definitely be doing better at. But nonetheless, within the very small space to maneuver, we're, we're still able to come up with other solutions and try and build both on the history and the tradition of the communities, as well as looking forward to more innovative solutions for these communities. It's good to hear that um, there's some adaptation going on and that these conversations are happening. Um, you know, it's not always enough to employ one way or a certain way of delivering aid in the face of things like climate change. But moving away from water. Uh, one of your passions has been to integrate gender and protection considerations in the delivery of wash services. Can you tell us why this is so important, especially in conflict zones? The relationship of women and water is, is quite intricate, right? Women don't have a lot of power with regards to decision-making around water, but they do have or they spend and give a lot of their time and energy around collecting the water and ensuring that their families have access to that water. So because of this gap between interacting with water on a day-to-day basis and the decision power that they lack, we see a lot of um, impacts of that, such as you know, um, time poverty that we always talk about when it comes to women and children who lose a lot of their time because they spend a lot of time bringing water, which can be compensated for or overset if the people with the decision making decided to uh, power decided to spend more money to overcome that time poverty. But we also see questions around the safety and security of women and children as they go and they get water. And especially the, that 
becomes even more prevalent in a crisis condition, right, in conflict zones. And I think maybe one more way to look at it, the conversation is usually around access to water and women, but also when we look at the other aspect of it with access to sanitation and women, it's really the women who then become the service providers of sanitation for their households or their communities if no solutions are are adapted or paid for by their um, communities or households. So for me, this has always been quite an interesting question. Um, and the question precisely is, how do you make sure that the, the people who deal with water on a day-to-day basis, which in our communities, or in Yemen especially, is women, and help them become part of the decision makers around access to water? So where do they want to spend their money? How much money do they want to spend? And how do they want to split these resources within the community? And how do they want to organize themselves around that? I think it's quite important and necessary to see women be part of that decision process. And right now that's lacking in a lot of places. And so that the hope is the more interventions there are, that this will always be the core and center of these conversations. Mona, as you were talking about that, it just makes me think about what we say oftentimes in this industry is that you can't fully operate in a silo. You know, we we have these different sectors, these different areas of where we work, but the work, it can't be siloed because, you know, people and communities aren't siloed. That's That's not how we we as people function. And so on that note, a lot of the projects that ADRA has been implementing in conflict-affected areas are multi-sectoral in nature. And so I would you've already alluded to it a little bit, but I would like to hear a little more. What, what has this collaboration between WASH and other sectors looked like? And you know, why is it important? How can it be strengthened? What are your thoughts on that? As we do our work in WASH, there are, of course, the the first thing is you try and get water for people to drink. But even as you go past that, there's there's a lot that can be done in collaboration and that is being done in collaboration with other sectors. So I think um, Adriaman especially does a really good job with working um, or integrating the health and wash sectors to make sure that the health sector is able to operate through the different facilities and to provide the minimum service packages, it's really important for the facility to have functional wash facilities. Um, and that means that we are able to fight these diseases properly. But it also goes past that um, supporting relationship into a complementary relationship when you look at things like the cholera crisis in Yemen. So as we were coming back in cholera in Yemen, one of the key approaches that we took was to consider wash or and apply it from a public health perspective. So it was no longer just trying to make sure that everybody had water, but it was, you know, detailed analysis to look at cholera hotspots that are there year round, not just when we are in the middle of the wave or at the peak of the wave. 
Um, and to try and look at these communities and, com and understand what are the sources of spreading this cholera disease. Um, and in a lot of cases, that was poor sanitation in these communities. That was a water source that was exposed or a water source that was mixed with sanitation water, etc. So just identifying these communities, identifying the source of the problem in these communities, eventually meant that, you know, the cholera cases were starting to fall off in the country as a whole. And so past that also, we can look at irrigation and wash is a really good example of integrated water management, similar to what I spoke about earlier about watershed management and integrated water resource management. Um, but perhaps one that doesn't come to mind often is livelihood and wash. And it is quite an interesting um, integration of the two because when you have water then you have access to a resource that you can commercialize and um, you know use for irrigation and uh, grow your agriculture or use for um, different services that your community is providing and the more livelihood activities grow within a community the more they are able to invest back into the community and maintain their wash resources and and seeing you know some of the projects that adra yemen was implementing as well as the projects that adra sedan is implementing in this aspect of the collaboration between the different sectors it's really quite impressive work and it's really always interesting to see um, the results of that work come to fruition and, and how people take it forward. And you know, a lot of the times I'd go to the different field on the different field visits and, and see results that we didn't even think about when we were putting together these projects. Yeah, that kind of, I, I love those examples. And as you mentioned, it's it's really neat to see how results that you didn't even think of as a result of, of integration and how things just sort of fit together. Um, you, you brought us to, you started mentioning uh, livelihoods and I, I wanna go back to this for a minute. You, you had mentioned it just now, but also a little earlier about how protracted conflicts tend to destroy livelihoods and impoverish households and communities. And this can limit the ability of these affected populations to maintain sustainable wash services. Um, can you tell us a little bit more how this issue can be addressed in wash programming, specifically in conflict zones? This is definitely a complicated question, and it is a lot about funding, right? So are we funding things only when they fail? Because that is essentially the definition of emergency funding. Um, even though it would cost us less to just maintain systems and keep them running, then watch them fail and then come in and put in um, some solutions. So perhaps, you know, on the part of partners implementing on the ground, some monitoring of already existing systems is going to be very important to be able to um, advocate for the need of maintaining these systems, even though it doesn't exactly fit under the definition of emergencies. But I think because they could constitute potential emergencies, that that should be reason enough for us to look for ways to solve that. 
the other aspect to it is really to look at the intersectoral work um, that's already happening um, and try to build more on that, right? So supporting communities to achieve better livelihoods means that these communities now have dispensable income. And in a, in, a commun- in communities that have lived under protracted crisis that already before that suffered from underdevelopment needs, chronic underdevelopment needs, livelihoods make such a huge difference because now they have more money to spend and now they... Um, integration between the different sectors means that they could get more for their money and it also allows for the targeting of the interventions around bigger themes so and I'm definitely a fan of applying WASH from a public health perspective because then you're able to save the community a lot of money that now they can invest into this community. Yes absolutely um, that. That's so important. And um, I love what you've shared with us here today. Mona, this is, we're coming to the end of our time together here for this this episode. And just from the little bit that you've shared with us, there's no doubt that witnessing conflict and its effects can be a little demoralizing at times. But in spite of that reality, to end this conversation on a positive note, just as a a last thought from you, what instances of WASH delivery have you witnessed that can be encouraging both to beneficiaries as well as to practitioners like yourself? I think there's a lot that's going on, right? We continue to talk about the protracted crisis. We continue to talk about yeah, the, num- the huge needs uh, on the ground. But, you know, every, every day we wake up and we do the best that we can to um, help the communities that we are working with. And examples of that include integrated designs where you really listen to the community and apply and respond to their needs, as well as examples of adapting cultural heritage to needs today, um, like rain harvesting, are ones that really keep me going because one, they are always a source of fresh ideas, and uh, and two, it's always nice to see these impacts in the communities. Um, you know, I think. For me, what stands the most is um, on one of my field trips, I went to the community where we piloted the rain harvesting at the household level. And, you know, we've had a lot of discussions whether or not to go for it and everything that that could have gone wrong with it. Uh, I got to speak with the women there and they were quite excited about finally having access to water at their households. And they've explained to me, you know, the that the community had a rainwater harvesting system that was a communal one shared between them and other communities, and it was pretty far, and there were no water resources um, like uh, groundwater available to that community. And and I, you know, you know, I'm I'm driving, and it's just a completely arid area. There are very few trees, if any, lots of rocks. Very beautiful. But also to, in the middle of that, find a lot of hope was quite satisfying. If you would like to learn more about Washington Conflict Zones, 
or if you would like to learn more about other topics regarding health, nutrition, and WASH, feel free to contact the Health Technical Learning Lab at healthtll at adra.org. That's healthtll at adra.org. To listen to other episodes of the HTLL podcast, please find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And we also now have a Spanish channel for HTLL podcasts in Spanish. To check this out, search the HTLL podcast Espanol on Google, Apple, or Spotify. Thanks for listening and do join us next time for another exciting episode of the HTLL podcast.